chapter 15, Matthew 15, and I'm going to ask you to stand once again as we read God's Word today. We're going to be in verses 29 through 39 today, and as we've seen the increasing glory of Christ's ministry, the increasing confrontation that Christ has witnessed, and we've been in this marvelous section seeing Christ correcting the false doctrine of the Pharisees, we come now to a healing, a mass healing, and also a mass feeding. And I pray that God would uh, help us to see the truth of His Word today. Verse 29, this is God's Word to us today. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And He went up on a mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to Him bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them, literally cast them at His feet, and He healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called His disciples to Him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with Me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took seven loaves and the fish. And having given the thanks, he broke them. And gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. After sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went into the region of Magadan. Please pray with me. Father, we come before you, and we ask for nothing more, God, and nothing less than your Holy Spirit to help us today. God, I pray that You would give us all a a measure of grace to anticipate Your Word to speak to us today. A measure of grace, Lord, to be able to glorify You even as these people did glorify the God of Israel in our text. God, help us to see Christ Jesus and Him crucified. Help us, God, to grow in the grace and knowledge of You that we might love one another more fully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to this text today, one of the things that ought to stand out to us and should always ring true is that as Jesus Christ is revealed as the Son of God and the image of the invisible God to us, it's supposed to elicit a proper response from His people. And we know that that proper response in total is faith towards Him. Love towards Him. And a a love and a grace that grows from the root of faith that's been put on our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God. But, too often, in my life and your life, I believe, our faith is often reduced to a, a number of presuppositions that we might find in systematic theology, which is good. We believe that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, Illuminated by the Scriptures alone. But the kind of faith that is given to us as an example today is a faith that trusts in our Savior, not just for our eternal souls, but trusts Him even for the lesser thing than that. 
to provide for us day by day and with each passing moment to meet our trials here. I believe that the crowds exhibit this kind of faith, and I hope to bring that out to you today. And the disciples are being gently taught by our Savior to have that kind of faith as well. So, central idea, I believe, of our text today, these 11 verses, is that Jesus miraculously he heals and feeds a Gentile crowd. I hope to see that as well. But also, He reminds His disciples to trust Him in ministry. The purpose of this text, far beyond that, is to, that we would trust the Lord to provide for all of our needs and to supply us to provide for others' needs as well. And the two imperatives is what I want us to see in this text. And that's going to outline our sermon. First, the first imperative to us is that you must trust Christ in order to seek spiritual things. Trust Christ with your common material provisions in order that you might seek spiritual things. And you must trust Christ with your material provisions in order to obey Him fully to love your neighbor. These things are provided by our Savior, by our God, as He gives us everything that is fit for life and godliness. So first, I want us to see that we must trust Christ's provision so that you might, we might seek spiritual things. And this is primarily in the example that we see of this Gentile crowd, but culminating and peaking and climaxing at the compassion of Jesus Christ that we see in verse 32. But as we kind of try to tread our road to that compassion of Christ, I want us to see the setting that we have here. The setting that the Apostle Matthew gives to us is the glory of God's power to a Gentile crowd. Now, you might say, well, where do we see this is a Gentile crowd? And I think that's a really wonderful question because at first reading, at a surface reading of this, there's nothing that would seem to indicate that these are anything other than what we've seen previously. Matthew 14, we've seen Jesus do a very similar miracle, but to a primarily Jewish audience. But Mark chapter 7, if you'll turn there with me quickly, we're going to be in Mark 7 and 8 a little bit today. I want us to see in the parallel passage given by Mark, we have a clue that is very substantial for our reading and shows us why the church historical has taken this text to be towards Gentiles. Notice Mark 7 in verse 31 we read that he returned from the region of Tyre and Sidon and or went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. Notice, in the region of Decapolis. That is the region of these ten cities that were on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And this is widely known in historical context to be a Gentile region. Jesus has been to Decapolis already in Matthew chapter 8 as he met the two men that were demon-possessed and cast them out. Notice... He cast them out into what? A herd of pigs. A Gentile audience. We see this very clearly elucidated in Mark chapter 7, verse 31. But I think also that this really helps us understand the context. As Matthew writes this, notice what he does. He puts it right after what we went through last week. In verses 21 through 28. This Canaanite woman coming to our Savior and begging Him to heal her severely demon-possessed daughter. And further, it makes sense to us, I hope, clearer sense, 
Why, in verse 31, when these people saw the blind seeing, the lame walking, their response is they glorified the God of Israel. You see, because these people were not of Israel. But their minds had been opened, their hearts had been opened to see that the God of Israel is the true God doing these miracles. And so we see here this Gentile audience in this context, we see the glory of God in His power towards these people. And we see Him bringing all the signs of the new covenant. The promised and prophesied signs of the new covenant to bear. We read that and sang that in Psalm 146, didn't we today? That the Lord heals the blind and the crippled and the lame. But maybe the key text is Isaiah 35.5 that says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. As we imagine this scene coming to pass here, we see all of the glory, all of the signs that signify the Messianic reign coming upon not a Jewish audience, but a Gentile audience. And we know, and we have been through many times, how these signs, they signify something, don't they? And they signify spiritual realities. The key text that we see, if we'll turn back to Matthew chapter 9... I know we're doing a lot of turning. I want to set us up here a little bit. We turn to Matthew chapter 9 to see this significance of these signs. And we would ask, what do these signs of the new covenant signify? Notice, spiritual realities are in view. In in verse 5, we see, as Jesus responds to the Pharisees thinking evil in their hearts, He says, for which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. Or rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus Christ makes the blind, the spiritually blind, see. He does that today, doesn't He? By His grace and His mercy. He makes those crippled, unable to obey God's law, walk. He makes those who can't hear God's law be able to hear and the Gospel be able to Here, these significant spiritual realities, the signs of the new covenant, the glory and power of God are displayed to these people. And this would have been shocking, I believe, to the disciples here. This could be one of the reasons for their doubt of Christ's feeding, although we're not sure about that. The shocking thing here is that Jesus Christ really shows no distinction between the ethnic, the racial differences between these people. He heals all, doesn't He? He doesn't show any holdback. It's not as if we read Him healing all sorts of diseases. Everybody that was brought to Him by the Jews, but with the Gentiles, He heals only the the sickest of the people. We don't see Him holding back any time. As we notice, Christ says later that these people have been with Him three days. Imagine how long it would have taken Jesus Christ, 4,000 men besides women and children, being brought up, And did you notice in the text that they they put them at his feet? The word here is literally the same word, ekbalo, that is used of casting out a demon. These people were thrown at the feet of Jesus Christ. And I think the idea we're supposed to get is a sense of urgency. 
There's so many applicants coming for grace and to see the signs of the new covenant. The people are kind of in a hurry throwing people at the feet of Jesus Christ that He may be healed. And Jesus shows the same compassion, authority, and power towards these Gentiles. It is not ethnic. It is not racial. The shocking thing that we have here is faith alone, regardless of the nationality, is what unites people to Jesus Christ. What obtains the blessing of the new covenant and faith given, obviously, by God Himself. Now, these signs that we see here are glorious. And there'd be no doubt about that. If we saw people being healed of their infirmities, all kinds of infirmities, if we had a doctor in town, as we've made this illustration many times, that could heal any sickness and any disease, we'd glorify God because of that. But more glorious... Then the sign shown, more glorious, is the glory of the crowd's response here. Now, what I mean by that, in verse 31, we see that they respond by giving glory to God by rejoicing. And we certainly rejoice in God's grace. And it's proper to respond in rejoicing to God's grace under any circumstances. Even natural things, right? Right? We read in Matthew 5.45 that God sends His Son and His reign on the just and the unjust. We read Romans chapter 2 that the goodness of God, even in just creation Himself, providing food and clothing, it should lead us to repentance. And it's right and good that we would glory in God's grace to a sinful world like the one that we have here. But how much more do we glory in the, the special revelation of the Gospel? That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came willingly, was sent, obeyed all of the law that we could never obey, that we would never obey, died the death that we should die in order that we could come to God and enjoy Him forever. And all these things are glorious and we rejoice in them. But listen to me, how much more glorious is it when a sinner actually believes it? When they see common grace and in your heart that's been renewed by the Holy Spirit says, praise God that He sends rain upon me a sinner with a dry, dusty heart that deserves all the curses of Deuteronomy 28 and worse. How often do we cry with Isaiah in Isaiah 53.1, who has believed what He has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? But in this text, we see these people responding properly. They see the glory of God. And they not only receive the grace, but they, they respond. Now, I'm not saying that all these had saving faith. That's uncertain. But they certainly had a proper response. And notice the three things that they did seeing the grace of God come to them. First, they wondered, right? They wondered. This is such a common word used in response to Jesus in the Gospels, they wondered. They were, uh, they were cast out of their mind. They were struck. They were struck. They, they wondered at the grace of God. They, but they also glorified God, didn't they? They glorified the God of Israel. They recognized the source from which it came, and they gave glory to the One who did it. But what I want to highlight to us today is they not only did this, but they continued doing this for three days. They continued doing this. Now, 
Why that's significant is they continued to worship, to rejoice and glorify God in spite of their lack of resources. Material resources. Didn't they? I mean, it's hard for me to kind of imagine this. I mean, we have, what, 1,500 people in Arlington. Um, we, we imagine 4,000 men alone gathered in this field by the high school here, perhaps. Besides women and children, perhaps 10,000, 12,000 people gathered out there. And, and they continued for three days with the Messiah, knowing they had a lack of resources. And what comes to my mind is I, there's a lot of women here, not only women, but mothers. How many mothers, you don't have to raise your hand, have snacks in their, in their bag, right? All of you do. I'm, I'm, I would almost bet on it. I probably can't say I'd bet on it, but I would almost bet on it. You have snacks somewhere in your bag, and the point I'm making is these women and children, men can be forgetful, but women and children, mothers, they, they know we need food. They're cognizant of the need. We're going to need food at some point. And these people are not dumb ancient rubes. They knew they needed food. They were out in a desolate place with their Savior. They knew they had nothing, and yet they continued to rejoice and glorify God for three days with our Savior. Now, we might say, well, maybe they were very close to home. And so they didn't really have to worry about that. Well, turn with me again to Mark chapter 8. As we cross over from 7 to 8, we have the same context, the same people. Notice... Mark chapter 8, the parallel passage, what Jesus says here, verse 2. Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. These people were here. They were rejoicing. They were glorifying God. They were worshiping God despite their resources, and the question that we would ask ourselves, that we should ask ourselves, were they foolhardy for doing this? Were they foolish? They should have provided something for themselves. I would say that in the context of our passage, the answer is absolutely not. That Jesus Christ loves the priority of these people's hearts, that they're willing to stay with Him for these days. And as Brother Matt, I'm gratefully read it because it was in my notes, by God's grace, I believe this is nothing more than obedience to what Jesus Christ commands us in Matthew chapter 6 and verses 31 through 32. Notice, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. These people had a great faith. They saw the priority of the spiritual, and I believe that they trusted that God was going to provide the lesser thing now that He's provided the better. And their faith wasn't put to shame in our passage, was it? It wasn't put to shame. In fact, it was more abundant than all that they could ask or think, probably. As we see in Matthew chapter 15, notice not just the glory of God's power being shown in these signs to the Gentiles, notice the glory of God shown in Christ's compassion to these people. As I read through this, and this is my own personal, I'm not trying to make a theological claim here, when 
my personal soul, when I read through the Gospels, I am not the most shocked by Christ's obedience to the law. I know that He's God and man, born without original sin. I'm not the most shocked even by His death on a cross because I know His holiness and His love for His people. I'm not shocked mostly by His miracles or by His wisdom. What shocks me every time I read it is His compassion towards sinful people. Often people He knows will never turn to Him. We have this word that we've brought up so many times that means to be moved in the bowels, right? His heart was moved in Him. In fact, J.C. Ryle talks about you know his, his mercy is mentioned pretty often. It's mentioned occasionally. His love is mentioned occasionally, but nothing is mentioned more often than His compassion towards sinners. Nine times in the Gospels, not even counting the parables that you could derive it from, nine times we're told that Jesus Christ is moved with compassion. And this is so strongly present, pungent, potent in our text today. Notice it. I'll read it again in verse 32. Jesus called His disciples to Him. And said, I have compassion on the crowd. Notice he gives a reason why he has compassion. Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Jesus calls his disciples and the first thing he does, he explains to him the condition of his heart. He's moved and has a heaviness for the people that are coming to seek after Him. And the most wonderful thing about this is this causes Him to look at His disciples in the eye who are tempted to send them away so that they can go and do other things. He looks at them in the eye and says, I'm unwilling. I'm unwilling. I do not have a will in my body. I won't budge an inch to send these people away. You feed them. You feed them. Now, I think this is a marvelous text and it shows us, again, the priority in Jesus Christ's heart for us that we would seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and trust Him for the rest. How wonderfully this is displayed in a very well-known text in Luke chapter 10. And I want you to turn there, although I could just read it very easily, because this text, I believe you ought to know where to find it in your Bible. And you should remind yourself of it often. Luke chapter 10 and verses 41 through 42, very much in line with Brother Joey's Sunday school today, that we ought not to rely on our service to the church, but on the grace of God. Notice, but the Lord answered her, that is Mary, who is troubled about these things. Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and notice the unwillingness, which will not be taken away from her. It will not be taken away from her. She's chosen to sit at my feet, receive the grace of the gospel. That is so important to the heart of Christ. He says to Mary, looks at her in the eye and says, this won't be taken away. I refuse to let it be taken away from her. Now, Jesus here. These people have been seeking the kingdom of God, worshiping the Father because of His mercy. He's not going to budge an inch. He won't send them away, but we must find a way to feed them. And the glorious thing for us here today is that our Savior has the same heart in heaven right now. 
As He's sitting at the throne of the Father, He knows every one of our circumstances where we are in providential straits, where we are concerned financially or emotionally or whatever it might be. Jesus Christ looks with compassion upon us. He looks with compassion upon us. He too commands you to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and to trust Him that all these material things will be added to you in His grace. He tells us to be concerned primarily about our spiritual growth and receiving of Christ. And I think I've brought this up a number of times the last couple months, but the Lutherans, uh, as much as we might poke at the Lutherans, or maybe Matt in particular, but uh, we, they had an, a concept that they called the Lord's Day service the divine service. Meaning that we come like Mary and sit and receive God servicing our hearts, giving us grace and mercy and peace. This is a helpful thing for us to think about. This text ought to cause us to recalibrate our priorities and concerns in this life. And I'd ask you today, are you, are you so overwhelmed and concerned with physical things? Perhaps it's anxiety. To the point where anxiety is so consuming your heart, you're not able to even seek the Lord. I would ask you to repent of that. Are you so concerned with material things that you, you can't gather with God's people as often as you're commanded to? And I'm not trying to bind you to be here every time the doors are open. That's an unbiblical principle. I think it's good, but not necessary. Are you so concerned that, that you're, not, you're not seeking spiritual things? That's the question we have to have in our, our mind. Are you so concerned with concern over earthly things that... As the Gospels say, that they're choking the Word and it becomes unfruitful. Right? Um, this passage tells us to set our minds on the example of the people in this passage. But more than the example of the people, it's to set our minds and our hearts on the fact that Jesus Christ is compassionate. And He loves us. And He cares for us. If He's given us His Son, how will He not freely give Him with us all things? All things. Jesus' compassion is for all who seek Him. That's what we should take away. And we ought to trust Christ's provision so that we might seek spiritual things. But secondly, we must trust Christ's provision that we might obey Him fully. And I struggled with how to word that second part here, but that we might obey Him with a, with a heart that trusts Him. That we might do good to our brothers and sisters trusting Him in our hearts. And contrasted with the great faith we see of this Syrophoenician, this Canaanite woman... Contrasted with that great faith, contrasted with the faith of these crowds gathering around, we see the small faith of the disciples here. right? And their small faith isn't pointed out by our gentle Savior, but I want us to notice that going into chapter 16 of Matthew, that the disciples have their eyes and their minds set on earthly things. They can't seem to, to get out of that. And that sounds familiar to my personal testimony probably to yours. We see in verse uh, chapter 16, in verse 8, we, we might know the story. They get into a boat, and Jesus says, you need to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the first thing that comes to their mind is what? Oh, he's upset that we didn't bring any bread. How silly is that, right? But that's what we do, isn't it? Yeah. And Jesus says, notice what he says. 
Verse 9, do you not perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? How many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand I did not speak to you about bread? In the Gospel of Mark, he says, your hearts are, are your hearts hardened? Are your hearts hardened? Even further in Matthew chapter 16, we see Peter, and what does he say after Jesus says, I got to go to Jerusalem, be crucified, and die and raised on the third day? Peter says, No, Lord, this will never happen to you. How does Jesus respond to that? Notice verse 23. He turned to him and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The disciples have a small and weak faith being shown in this text. And many have commented how strange this seems. Especially if you're reading through perhaps in a devotional manner from Matthew chapter 14 through chapter 15. The disciples one chapter ago saw the very same thing happen. How is it possible that their hearts are so hardened here? This has even led some liberal scholars, and it doesn't take them much to make these conclusions but led some of them to say, well, this is actually just a reduplication of the first story. This wasn't a second event at all, but just a repetition of it to make a point. But how do we know that's not the case? And I'm off on a little bit of a tangent. We see that in what we just read in chapter, uh, verses 9 and 10 in chapter 16, don't we? Jesus himself in the boat says, do you remember both instances and how I fed the crowds? This cannot be the case. We have different numbers for the crowd. We have different loaves of fish. We have different baskets taken up afterward. And we have Jesus himself saying that these are two different things. And we see this small faith of the disciples. And we see the forgetfulness of the disciples, don't we? So easily it leaves their mind God's provision that he made for them. And isn't it so similar with the Old Testament when we read through the Hebrews going through in the book of Numbers, book of Exodus, going through, and they're constantly saying, you've led us here to die in the wilderness. And God has to show a sign to show that He's with them. But they're unwilling to trust Him. And we might be tempted to say, how can these people, if I can be crass, how can they be so dumb? How can they be so stupid as to forget our Savior? Well, that stupidness, that Dumbness. I'm, I'm glad to own those words. They're in my heart constantly and consistently. If I remember God's faithfulness to me and take time to sit down and maybe with a pen write out all the times that God has been faithful to me, it's absolutely astounding. And all the times I've ever preached and I've said to you for seven years, how many times has God shown Himself to be unfaithful to you? None of you have raised your hand. None of you have came to me afterwards and say, well, there's that one time that God showed Himself not to be true to His promises and to be faithful. All of you say, even the trials and the difficulties have grown fruit in my life and God has been faithful. There's a period six, seven years ago when we were going through a terrible time in our church, season of very difficult ministry, and I don't say this for your pity, but I, I did feel... I did feel the very weight in my soul of Elijah going under that broom tree and saying to God, Lord, take away my life. But God showed himself abundantly merciful to everybody involved in that situation. How many times has God delivered you? How many times has he, has he shown his grace and mercy to you even in the material things of this life? 
His faithfulness is true. And so much more, our forgetfulness is highlighted here. We forget just as easy as these disciples. I don't know how many times on Sunday morning I can be full of faith in the pulpit and I go home on Sunday afternoon and I'm filled with doubts and fears. It's true. Matthew Henry very helpfully says this, forgetting past experiences leaves us under present doubts. We must remember God's faithfulness to us. I look around this room, I see all these faces. God's been faithful to you. I can say that with confidence today. I know your situations and your story. God's been faithful to you. You can look at your brothers and sisters across the aisle and say, God's been faithful to us. We take time, don't we, on our pie and praise every Thanksgiving to try to enumerate all the things that God's been faithful in. We must not forget these things. But we will. And we need reminded don't we? And that's what we see here. We have Christ's reminder in this text to trust me in your obedience. We might characterize these disciples as dumb and myself as dumb. That's certainly true. But notice how gentle our Savior is with these weak faith men who had chosen to follow after him. Notice what he does. He doesn't he doesn't prod at them. He doesn't poke. He doesn't even say you have little faith, which he has the right to do. Notice. He just says, after they say, where are we to get bread? Jesus goes and directs the crowd to sit down. He goes and directs them. I praise God that Matthew 12, 20 is true of our Savior. That a bruised reed He will not break. And a smoldering wick He will not quench until He brings justice to victory. He knows our forgetfulness. And He stays with us. He stays with us. He provides for us. He reminds us constantly through His Word and through His people. He's given us 66 books of the Bible that repeat the same promises over and over and over and over again so that you won't forget, or you won't forget long, that He is compassionate towards us. And I want us to know today that in this text, notice how He provides. We've already seen this in chapter 14, but He provides for these people who are waiting on Him. And how does He provide for them? Well, He gives them their needs. He doesn't give them all filet mignon necessarily, right? Well, He could do that. He gives them simple barley bread probably, probably some dried pieces of fish, but He provides for them abundantly. These people probably are poor people who maybe have never experienced a totally full stomach all the days of their life. It's possible. It's possible. He provided more than they need. They needed to get to the town, maybe give them, you know, 200 calories to be able to get there. Jesus provides much more than they need. He provides not only for them, but abundantly for the disciples, right? We put our plate, our minds on the disciples here. They've got seven loaves, and the loaves were probably this big and that thin. It wasn't enough for the 12 of them, the 13 of them, rather, to eat. God provides more. They gather up these baskets full afterwards. God provides fully much more than they had. And brothers and sisters, this can be applied to all of our service, whether it's spiritual or material or whatever it might be. That's why this text has affected me. Very often in the pulpit, we get up and we pray that, Lord, we have few pieces of bread, but we pray that you divide it and make it sufficient for your people to feed us for the week. When you're serving other people, I don't know how many times I've made the excuse in my heart, and I've heard you guys make the excuse as well, 
I don't have the emotional energy to deal with that person. I, I just can't deal with people today, right? And I get it. I understand. But Jesus Christ is able to provide. We give him our weak, limited resources. He's able to, to multiply them and to help us. He's not twiddling his thumbs in heaven, hoping that one day we'll have the resources in order to love and serve the people of God as he's commanded. He commands us to go, and as the widow pouring out the oil, it increases with the pouring. Grace increases with the doing. And so we're called not just to trust God to speak, seek spiritual things, but to trust God to love our neighbor, to give what we can and trust that God's going to use it. He will provide for you. He will provide grace for you. It might not look the way you want it to look, but he will provide. Our faith, the life of faith that we have, is not confined to doctrinal statements. Although that's very important. Our faith is a day-to-day lived life where we're trusting Jesus Christ to have compassion and provide for us because he promises that he will. That he will. Um, I think the last text that I'm going to read as a reminder to us, and I'm going to read two. I'm, I'm in between. i got two written down. I'm going to read both of them to you. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Now, this is a somewhat obscured text, but I think it's so helpful for us to have it in our mind as we think about providing and loving people with limited resources. The preacher in Ecclesiastes 11 says this, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Now, what in the world does that mean? Casting your bread upon waters in any sense, financially, materially, foolish thing to do, right? But the writer here, in part, in a short statement, is telling us to be um, liberal with our, with our finances and giving, right? To be gracious. Notice verse 2, give a portion to seven, even to eight. That's a large number, a perfect number, and even more than a perfect number, right? For you know not what disaster may happen on the earth if the clouds are full of rain. They empty themselves on the earth if a tree falls to the south or the north in the place where the tree falls, there will it lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. You see the negative there, don't you? That we're to be liberal with our things, with our, with our ministry, with our finances, all things to our brothers and sisters. But he who observes the clouds, he's watching closely out his door. Oh, it's a little too rainy today. I don't think I'm going to go so. I don't quite have the emotional reserves right now to deal with that person, so I'm not going to go talk to them, right? I don't quite have enough money saved in my savings account to be able to give to the person who's in need in the church. Now, while some of those things are appropriate and right, we have to balance that in our hearts. Are we trusting God with what we're doing? Are we trusting Him? Because, as we've already said, if He has given the most valuable thing in the world, God has given His only Son for us. We must be consistent in our walk of faith that He's watching over us, providing for us, governing all things so that we can even obey His will and His Word. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. The crowd shows us a great example of that today. Our Savior shows us the reason why it's a good example. His compassion makes it effective. 
And if you must be reminded today, you're just like me and just like every other Christian. You're just like the apostles that wrote the New Testament. We're forgetful and need reminded of it. And so the reminder here today is to trust Him with everything, with life, with godliness, with your eternal salvation, but also with your needs every day and always. As we turn our eyes to the communion table, it's an easy transition, right? We, we see Jesus Christ feeding these crowds with this bread that they could go home. They were abundantly supplied. But how much more are we supplied in the gospel with the bread of life, which is the body and blood of Jesus Christ? He's provided us His righteousness, His holiness that we could never attain. When God looks at us, He rejoices over us because we have been abundantly supplied for in Jesus Christ. Our sin cannot take away from what He's given to us. And our righteous acts cannot add to what He's done. He's abundantly supplied for us. And that's what we remember when we partake of the table. Brother Joey, would you come forward?